Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It is Brandon Laws, your host. This episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Zenium is helping small and medium-sized companies with their compensation analysis, compensation plan designs, and philosophy. Reach out to Zenium HR by going to the website zeniumhr.com to learn more and to reach out to our certified compensation specialist where you can get tons of information about our pay equity analysis and compensation plan design services. Okay, this episode today is a fascinating one. I had a conversation with Errol Dobler. He is a former Navy SEAL and former FBI agent. And great conversation with him about all that he's learned about uh, leadership in these particular uh, fields. It's not every day you get to talk to a, a former Navy SEAL and FBI agent. There's obviously a lot he cannot tell me, but a lot about working in teams and leadership have the same principles as you and I experience in the business world or the nonprofit world. So he brings all that experience he has and he shares a lot with us about emotional intelligence and self-awareness, uh, culture and leading. Uh, you're going to love this, this conversation. It's a good one. Uh, hope you enjoy it reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of the places. And uh, make sure that if this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on Spotify or Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for the support. And if you don't hear from me again before the holidays, happy holidays and a happy new year. We've got tons of stuff coming out. I'll be taking some time off around the, the Christmas and New Year's time frame, but I do plan to get out weekly episodes as typical. So enjoy and talk to you soon. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Brandon, it's, the pleasure is truly all mine. I appreciate you uh, giving me some of your time. So uh, let's do it. I'm excited. Well, you got a hell of a story. So you're um, an ex-Navy SEAL, FBI uh, agent. Uh, what what else is in your background? <laughs> you, you make me feel insignificant, I'm sure many others too. <laughs> no, that's not true. But don't forget, leadership consultant. That's what I'm doing now. So <laughs> that's, how, that's how we're putting money in the bank. <laughs> and so we're going to talk about leadership. And you've built a process around leadership and, and wrote a book called The Process, Art, and Science of Leadership. How Leaders Inspire Confidence and Clarity in Combat in the Boardroom and at the Kitchen Table. I had a chance to read it. Fascinating book. You got lots of great stories that are um, like for me, I'm like, I'm, I was sweating at times <laughs> with some of the story. I'm like, I don't know how you even can go through this emotionally. But um, let's start with this because I think you start the book in a really good way. I think you state that a lot of leaders know that they need some, like something's off. They need a behavior change. They need some sort of change, but they're just not making it in order to become that effective leader they know they need to be. So what's holding them back? Well, there's a lot. It, there's a lot holding them back. And that's the beauty of this whole thing. It, there's not one right answer, right? It's a Leadership is a very creative space. So I have a process and people say, oh, that's just, he's 
says do one, two, and three, and A, B, and C. And that's that's not it at all. The elements of my process will appear everywhere. And what you do inside of them is really going to be a, the mark of the, your creative. Now, the reason people they, they you know get stuck, they just don't know. They don't know where to go. They don't know why they're feeling what they're feeling. They don't know what to do about that feeling. They don't have some place to go. They don't have a base of knowledge to go to. And that's why, you know, then you've heard me say, in times of chaos and stress, people go to what they know. And if you don't know anything around leadership, if you don't know anything other than what you've always been doing, you're just simply not going to be able to go anywhere. So, you know, the idea that they know something's wrong, but they just don't know what to do. Okay. Well, at least if you know something's wrong, you're starting. Yeah. That's that's a good start. Right. Something in my gut doesn't feel right. Because they know, yeah, they know it uh, versus not knowing it. That's the issue. <laughs> that, that's right. And, and you know, believe me, anybody who's listening to this, you and I know there's more leaders out there who don't know something's wrong. And that's that's the problem. We can work with a leader who says, I know something's wrong. I just can't figure it out. No problem. Tell me what you're feeling. Right. And that's, that starts the conversation. I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling afraid. I'm feeling angry. Why are you feeling that way? And they'll rattle off 10 things that are happening. And now we're on our way. Right. They, they will have identified what's, what's happening in there that based on how they're feeling. That makes it easier. Um, so again, awareness, a number one. And, you know, people just need help sometimes. That's all. It's not a big deal. Leadership is, not everybody leads. Everybody should be leading in some way, shape, or form, but not everybody does. And mm-hmm. that's why I have a job. Uh, so people can get unstuck. They can just see a different perspective. Let's talk about your time as a Navy SEAL. I don't know if it was early on during your your uh, SEAL training, but I think you might have been a little out of control Um <laughs> maybe not the best Navy SEAL you could possibly be. And you wrote that a senior officer pulled you aside when I don't know if it was during training or something, but he just said, hey, I wouldn't be surprised if one day you were found drunk and dead in a ditch, or if you turn out to be one of the greatest officers this Navy has ever seen. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you respond to something like that. What was your reaction, and why do you think you said that? So that was before I got into the SEAL team. So okay. when I, I started my naval career, my naval officer career, as what's called the surface warfare officer, I was on a ship. I was a ship driver. And prior to doing that, you have to go to surface warfare officer school just to learn how to drive a ship, all the elements of a ship, you know, leadership stuff, all that, all that stuff. So I wanted to be a SEAL right out of graduating from the Naval Academy. So I was immature and frustrated where I was. Mm. And I just, you know, I have a natural, I don't know if rebellion streak is the right thing. I guess it is. I just sometimes, I sometimes see things differently. And I like to do things differently. And it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean I reject somebody else's way. It's just that I've always found that I had a different way. And, you know, so that combined with some frustration, some immaturity, some not understanding my emotions and just acting on my emotions, it led me to get into a lot of trouble um, at that school. And it's not something that they had seen before. You know, they just couldn't fathom it. And, you know, what is trouble? Well, you know, I'd be out late, staying out late, drinking every now and then. I'd come into class with a with a mark on my face from perhaps a scuffle the night before. Oh, it, ju- it, it just wasn't <laughs> what they were seeing. And yeah. so that led me to, you know, 
I didn't take the academic portion seriously. So I failed a couple of tests. When I say I didn't take it seriously, like it's not that I didn't study enough. It's that when I was in class, I didn't even pay attention. I might as well not even have been there and then didn't pick up a book. You can't pass anything <laughs> right? if you're not paying attention, you know? So, yeah. And so I had gotten into some trouble. They, they were looking to maybe just remove me from the Navy. And that's a, you know, that is a story in and of itself. But the bottom line is at the end, the guy who the senior officer who was going to remove me from the Navy in my mind went a little too far in the things he said about me. So I defended myself um, because I was, if he had just kept his mouth shut, I was going to, I was going to leave the Navy. I was like, yeah, it's no problem. I'll go maybe better for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, once he was doing this and I said, well, hold on a second, this, this is not accurate. And I just said a few things. I'm not that. I know I've made mistakes. I'm not as bad as he's saying. You know, I'm not going to get somebody killed. I'm just frustrated and I'm being immature. And I guess if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't act this way. So I'm sorry. But, yeah. you know, I just said, that's not it. So after the person who was making the final decision said, yeah, you know what? We're going to keep him. And it was after that, you know, another officer came in and just that's when he said it. He goes, I, I just, he was like, what you just did in there, you convinced an admiral in the Navy who has no time for any of this to go against the orders of another senior officer. I've never seen that before. That influenced the way you just remained calm mm. and stated your case. And that's when he said it. He goes, and so I wouldn't be surprised if you were found drunk in a ditch somewhere. You turned out to be the greatest officer this Navy's ever seen. And, and his point was, he was trying to help me. Yeah. You know, he was, and he didn't lecture me too much more. And I, I just said, yeah, okay, sir, I appreciate it. And, and it was over Christmas. So I had to stay back. You know, I was like the only one there, you know, that was my punishment, which was bad because I like going home for Christmas, but it was, it was a good time for reflection. And I said, you know, I, I do have to make some decisions here, get, you know, just tighten up a little bit. So that was it. That was the, the nexus, the genesis of that comment. And it, it stuck with me. It did because it hurt a little bit, but it also felt good. He said two things. So yeah, that's that story there. When you left the SEAL teams, what? how old were you at that point? I was young. Um, I was 31, maybe. Okay. Yeah. And then, so after that point, I mean, you had obviously tons of experience uh, with, with the SEAL teams. What what went well and what didn't as you reflect on that time? Maybe about the people you interacted with, about the processes, the culture, leadership that you interacted with. I'm curious what, you, what your thoughts were overall. So here's what went poorly. Here's what drove, and this is why I do, I'm fortunate enough to be invited on a lot of these podcasts. I, I asked to go on a lot of them as well. And we end up talking about emotions a lot. And that's the core of where I saw my struggles along the way. No emotional awareness. I was an overly emotional guy. I grew up in a very emotional family. We didn't have control of our emotions when we talked to each other in the family. It's just what we felt. And if you're yelling and screaming and doing that, that was acceptable. It was, it was, a, it was a free for all. So naturally that's how you grow up. And so I had no awareness of the emotions and the impact they would have on anything I was doing. And, and that, that's just random behavior, right? So why did things go well sometimes? Well, Things went well sometimes. Like in the SEAL teams, I was, again, I was considered an excellent officer. And you, you saw this in the book too, despite the stupid things I did. The stupid things I did were never in line with my actual job as a Navy SEAL officer. 
And that's what saved me most of the time. That's what saved me in the surface warfare Navy. I did my job and I led people really, really well. Anything outside of my job, who knew? <laughs> right? Who knew? <laughs> who knew? You know, when work was over and we we're hanging out, who knows what I might say? What all fan comment? Who knows what I might laugh at? Who knows, God forbid, when we're out on the town, what I might be doing? You know, it just, that's what the random parts were. I wasn't, you know, I just was not aware of really the results of my actions based on my emotions. And it worked out most of the time inside the job because my emotions were one of love and passion and and excitement, right? I loved everything about being a SEAL and leading the people I led. So consequently, my emotions were really in tune to the positive. Mm-hmm. And, and, my, and my excitement could be tempered by the knowledge that there was a plan that I needed to follow that me and me and the team made. So even if I got overexcited, I recognized it because I could go back and say, yeah, but we've got to follow this plan, right? Don't stay on the plan. The plan's good. But then I was also able to, you know, really be flexible and deviate from plans and be creative. So that's the combination of things. It was, it was my inability to take anything else seriously outside of my job that got me into trouble. You said that emotional awareness and recognition, which is the first step of the process, Mm -hmm. is the most challenging element of leadership. Why do you say that? Well, that combined with the second element, cultural awareness and recognition, because it's the the emotions that drive our actions. Mm. And when you start looking at the things you do based on the emotions, it's going to be a hard pill to swallow. It was a hard pill to swallow for me when I started to look at it really deeply. And then it was, it was in hindsight, it was in, you know, I was reflecting and I would think back, God, I wish I could go back to that person who I insulted unintentionally, but now I know I did. And so to have that, we talk about awareness. That's, that's what I mean by the awareness. So when you recognize an emotion that you have, and then you recognize, here's how I act on it. And that is the ugliest thing I can think of. That's a hard pill to swallow, and that's a hard place to be, but it's it's a required place to be. And we do these things without judgment. I, I wasn't allowing myself to beat myself up because that would have defeated the point. I had to look at it objectively. This is what I did, and I didn't like it based on these emotions. Okay, now what? So that's why it's the hardest part because it just doesn't feel good to look in that mirror sometimes. Yeah. I think it's an interesting point that you're making just about like it's a hard pill to swallow once you become aware of it, but I think so many emerging leaders or contributors, they never even get to the awareness stage. They never even realize their behaviors or get a chance to correct them or or just kind of sit with them for a little bit. They just never get to that first step, wouldn't you say? No, well, absolutely. And that's, that's, that's right from the beginning of our discussion. Because only when we have that awareness around how we're feeling and what we're doing, can we make the targeted and specific adjustments to great behavioral change and great leadership. Not even great, good, right? Sometimes we just need to make a good adjustment and that will really propel us. But without the awareness, you you simply can't have it. So that's why the you know the flexibility in my process is ultimately what people enjoy about it because I don't have there's a lot of great leadership books out there. Okay? And and I love I love reading them and I do read them. Because I, I learned from everybody else as well, too. But most of them are based around certain behaviors. Do these three things and you'll be a better leader. Yeah. Now, generally speaking, they're right. However, not always. And they're not, not right 
because that particular thing, two or three things that they said isn't true, it just may not be applicable, right? So I may not, you know, you may not need, Brandon, to prioritize, work on prioritization or work on being in the moment as a leader. Those are two behaviors that will make you better anywhere. But if I said those are two solid elements of good leadership, you would agree with me, but you wouldn't need to hire me to help you because you're like, yeah, but I do those things. I'm constantly in the moment and I'm very good at prioritizing. I'm having trouble with these four things. So that's why my process allows for the individual to come up with on their own the targeted behaviors that are necessary to make them better leaders because they they've generally have some of them. Yeah, that's the awareness part, right? I, I kind of went off on a tangent, but it all mm. starts with the awareness <laughs> part. That's it. Yeah. Let's talk about somebody who didn't have awareness. So your time <laughs> in the FBI is one of my favorite stories from the book. And, and maybe it was a, a dark point in your career. I have no idea. But uh, the FBI story where you're you're advocating to send an undercover FBI uh, officer to infiltrate a gang and uh, do a drug buy, a, a gun buy, and you can't get uh, Tim, who I think is probably a fake name, to, it is. to buy to buy off on it. And what was what did that whole scenario teach you just about this whole awareness and emotional awareness aspect of leadership? Well, a few things. Um, first of all. I think I say in the book, you know, I, I'm culpable as well in that disaster, right? Because I started to prod him. We started to find, despite his resistance to what we were doing, despite his very overt attempts to block what was happening, we were getting authority to do what I asked. And we were having massive success initially. Um, and I would just start needling him. Like, hey, yeah, Tim, please keep disagreeing with me because it's like my good luck charm. Every time you say I can't do something, it goes, yeah, did I really need to do that? I probably could have taken my own advice at that point, right? A little emotional awareness and recognition because he was making me furious. And all I needed to do was maintain my professionalism, but instead I, so that's the one thing. The other thing was I learned a lot about myself in that what's obvious to me is not obvious to everybody. And that wasn't the only time that had happened to me. We took a very aggressive approach in that case, but we took an aggressive approach not to be not to be uh, careless. There is a process, there's a method, generally speaking, there's a playbook to do drug cases, to do gang cases, to do weapons cases. And generally speaking, if you follow that methodology, you're going to gain some success, right? People have been doing them for decades, Okay, so you have to look at how they're done first. And I looked at how it's done first, and I looked at what people had tried to do with this same group, and it never worked. They were, the gang was being more advanced. Okay, so that's when I said, we've got to do it this other way. The second I said, we've got to do it the other way is when the bad stuff happened. And I even acknowledged to him, I know that this is the general playbook, but here's why it doesn't work, because these four law enforcement organizations tried it, and it didn't work that way. And the fact that I just didn't say to him, okay, we'll do it that way, made him furious. Mm -hmm. So I had to understand, and I did, that I'm able to do things very differently and very quickly on a dime. But what what I really learned is that some people are so close-minded that no matter what happens, no matter... the and success only closes their mind more. So I don't know that I could have done anything different in that situation 
not because I didn't have any fault in the whole thing, but because there was never there were so many windows of opportunity for Tim to open his mind a little bit and just say, okay, this seems to be working. I don't love it, but it seems to be working, so I'll back you up. So what did I learn? I just never believed people could be so closed-minded, especially when our job is to serve the public, right? This wasn't, you know, this had nothing to do with us as individuals. This had, this had to do with a, a group, a gang that had decimated a community over the course of decades. And when we can't put our ego aside at that point, we're in big trouble, which is, again, that goes to part of the reason why I ended up leaving the FBI, because Tim seemed to be more of a dime a dozen as far as leadership went there. So again, a long answer. There's a lot for me to learn, but that's those are some of the highlights. Related to practicing the culture, uh, cultural awareness and recognition, you wrote that if you can't define or articulate the things you, you do uh, that create that excellence, then you don't really have a culture of excellence. All you have is a meaningless label. So what should leaders do instead of just creating that meaningless label? Well, you know, it can go either way. The first thing is identify what you do. Cultural awareness and recognition. Culture is made up of the things you do, not the labels you put on them. So let's start by labeling what we do. If you're a leader, look around your team, right? Look around in the floor. And I get it. We're not, we're going to go back to work. Okay. And even still, Zoom is still the office. Okay. You can still look and see what people are doing. Are people interrupting each other? Are people yelling inane comments back and forth? You know, is everybody trying to one-up the other person on what they've been doing? Okay, if that's what you're seeing, that's what they do, go ahead and now put a label on that. That's that's a label of, you know, uh, I don't know what craziness, right? That's a label of unproductivity. That's That's still a label, but I can tell you that's what you all are doing, and I'll put that label on it. So, again... First area, you have to be aware. What are you doing? Now, make a decision. How do you want people to behave? If you want a culture of innovation, let's just say you start with the label, right? I want a label of excellence. I want a label of innovation. Cool. Identify three things that you and your team or your organization would do. Behaviors. Has nothing to do with your widget. Identify two or three and make them the basis for everything you do, how you behave. Drive those behaviors. Be committed to, if we behave in these ways, we'll be better engineers. We'll be better salespeople. We'll be better mechanics, right? Whatever it is, because it won't matter. It's the behaviors that will drive the organization. So those are the two ways to do it. It might be you just have behaviors that you think are important. So what what am I talking about behaviors? Well, the story I tell is the very first sales team I took over when I joined the private sector. And I just, I, all I had to do was look, you know, I went in there for a couple of days before I officially took control of uh, uh, the team. And I certainly had heard what this team was. So once I saw it, you know, firsthand, I said, okay, there's just a couple of things that need to happen here. We need to be on time. We need to stop gossip and bad mouthing. Mm. Um, we need to pay attention when we're all sitting around, and we need to stop lying or being deceitful in in where we are, in what we're doing, in our sales projections. And in my mind, if we behaved in those ways, which have nothing to do with sales, we would get we would be a better sales team. Those are examples of behaviors that can make us better if we do them. I, you know, and I could 
I had to be able to identify them to the team, break them down, give them context, explain why, explain why based on what I had seen. They hated it. They thought <laughs> at first, I, yeah, at first they thought I was treating them like children. And how dare I, right? And then the the, the accusations of Hitler coming, you know, the whole thing, right? If, if, right? if somebody doesn't like you, they call you Hitler. And mm-hmm. um, so, but you know, once I caught, you know, once I said, okay, I hear you. Let's just walk through it, and I'll tell you where I'm coming from. They were fine. Uh, they and it took a while for them to get those simple behaviors. But then we had an awesome sales team. What was our culture? I have no idea, but I can tell you the things we did. Okay, and you can put that label on it. So that's the thing. If somebody says to me, "Oh, we have a culture already. We have a culture of again innovation." Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. What do you do that creates innovation? If you can't tell me what you do very specifically, then you're just making stuff up. What I love about the guidelines for the behaviors that you're that you're describing is it allows not only you to hold your team members accountable, but it allows them to hold each other accountable to the standard that was is going to be within the culture. That's exactly right. And that's why you have them. That's why you have to identify them. You can't hold someone accountable if they don't know what they're supposed to be accountable to. Leaders don't operate on assumption and hope. You can't hope people know how to behave. You can't assume that they know that this is the behavior you expect. If you want something, you have to make it clear. Okay, that's it. And now here comes the whole dictatorial thing where you're not letting people be the way they want to be. Well, yeah, if how you are is you gossip all the time and you badmouth and you're never on time and you lie, yes, I am telling you that you will not be a good cultural fit for my team if you do those things. And if that's who you are, then you should be who you are somewhere else because this won't work. It might, might work for that person's team. That's cool. But for my team, because I'm the leader and I have to establish things we will hold each other accountable to, that's my job. I have to establish them. It doesn't mean you don't get input. It doesn't mean you don't run them by the team. It doesn't mean you don't adjust them as necessary, but you've got to start that process of establishing what you will hold people accountable to, and it needs to be very clear and unambiguous. Who's in charge of creating those guidelines? Is it like a single leader, like a CEO level person? Is it an executive team? Is it all the leaders? Is it all the people? Like Who gets involved in all this? So... All of the above, okay? So there should not be 30 behaviors, okay? There, there should only be a few behaviors. Now, as you, if you have a really super big company, let's say you have IBM, it's going to be hard to do something like that, right? From a, from a CEO level to say all 400,000 employees will do these things, okay? Now, you can, right? There can be, there, there can be some very standard things what IBM, you know, and I just use IBM as an example, what they stand for, okay? But the fact of the matter is within each team, there are going to be behaviors that are required that you're going to have to identify. So there might be a couple of organizational things that the big boss says, here's how we're going to behave. Cool. You better, you better meet those because that's coming from the top down. And they're probably good, okay? And if they are, they stay in place. But you might see one or two other things outside of those behaviors, or even though they're doing those larger, you know, the behaviors that are coming from the top down, even if they're doing those well, they're still struggling in some other areas. And those are specific to your team or that group inside of your team. So you've got to make the adjustment. You've got to establish, we need to work on this behavior. So until we get it right, we're going to focus on it, right? Maybe it stays as a staple, right? Maybe you say, yeah, we have these two 
company-wide behaviors, but inside my team, we also do these two things. That's okay. That's the art. You've got you've to be flexible with it. But the answer to your question is, who knows where they come from? But if you have a big organization, I should say the organization should have a couple of behaviors that everybody's required to do. And then inside each team, you've got to see then what's missing. You've got to make those adjustments. Process number four is implement the planning process. And you gave countless examples in the book about during your time as a Navy SEAL uh, and with the FBI where you just had to rehearse situations over and over again, whether it was a a drug raid or with the SEALs, you were jumping out of planes, uh, raiding a ship. Uh, It could have been any of those things. But planning and preparation were obviously vital to success of those teams so nobody was hurt or killed. So how does this step of planning translate to the corporate world? Now that you're inside the private sector and and working with leaders, how do you translate your experience in the time of the SEALs and FBI where it will help the corporate world with the planning process? So what I tell them is, and this is why I include combat stories. Combat stories are important for a couple of reasons. First, they're entertaining. People enjoy them. And that's important, right? It's it's important to enjoy those things. But here's the real value of them. In combat, if you don't do things well, you have one of three consequences, mission failure, injury, or death. And those are all unacceptable. And there is a planning process that's in place. I, I just bought the one that we use over from the SEAL teams, right? Modified it, watered it down a little bit, but it's the same elements. And if you cover the elements inside that planning process, your plan will succeed or it will tell you why it won't succeed. Now, what's what's the unsaid thing in that? You can't start acting before you have your plan because the plan may tell you we're not ready to do this. So that's the biggest thing that I see in the corporate world right now and really a lot of in families, right? That's why I put that on, on the cover of the book, combat, boardroom, kitchen table. <laughs> we're just doing, we're not planning. Right? We're not giving thought to the important elements of what we're going to do. And then somebody might argue and say, well, that's Errol, that's very robotic. You know, in your family, you plan and that doesn't seem like too much fun. You plan everything. And my response would be, so what you're saying is me giving thought to how to best utilize my precious time with the most important people in my life isn't the right thing to do? how to maximize our Saturday afternoon, just from the standpoint of, hey, what do we all want to accomplish today as a family? First thing, we want to be together. Great. Do we need a lazy day or do we need an active day, right? That's, let's define it, right? Hey, I need a lazy day. Hey, I need an active day. Hey, mom, how about you? I need a lazy day. Good. I need an active day. I'll take this one. We'll go be active. Whatever it is, you get nothing but good outcome, okay? So, yeah. I plan everything. I plan when I get done with you, Brandon, I'm going to go downstairs and check on my wife and kids, right? We, we disenroll them from school. They're homeschooling. I have a plan for when Same I- Same with us. Yeah. You know, so God bless you, right? So- <laughs> It's tough. <laughs> yeah. I have a plan for that. I've got a recognized situation. I know what I want to accomplish when I go down there, right? I'm, I'm going to be aware of the certain things that could be going wrong. I'm going to be able to pivot on that. Why wouldn't I do that? So that's the biggest thing that's happening. Organizations are acting without planning. And because they don't plan, they put too much on their plate. And now they don't get anything done, right? And we hear that all the time. We have too many things. We have too many fires to put out. My, my response is simply, 
give me your list of things you're trying to accomplish. Okay, there's probably 15. We all know that's going to be too many. And I say, now prioritize them. One to 10, just do it. Okay, now they'll prioritize them. And I'll say, okay, here's the plan for one. Right? We'll put a skeleton plan together for my planning process. And then I'll say, okay, let's put a plan together for number two. Given these two plans, put them side by side. Do you have enough resources and time and money to do both things at the same time? If the answer is yes, then I say, okay, let's put the plan for number three out there. Do you have enough time, resources, and people to do all three at the same time? The answer is no. I say, there you go. Put number three aside. Do one and two. And as soon as you finish one, one or two, you know, one of them, you can move on to the next one. That's it. Right. That's it. That's, that's, so that's the, that's the problem is there is no prior planning. Do you think in the SEAL teams, like somebody's like, Hey, let's go jump out of an airplane and attack the bad guys. Woo-hoo! Like, no, yeah, right. <laughs> right? there is, there are those big, big ideas, but inside each big idea is a very methodical and disciplined planning process. And people often confuse those two things. There's a difference between having a big out-of-the-box idea and the execution of that big out-of-the-box idea. That has to be spot-on discipline. Process number five, meet the resistance. What is the resistance when it comes to the leadership model? How does it manifest itself and how does it hit the team usually? So the resistance is an, a fairly overused term, but I just used it anyway because it just because it's overused doesn't mean it's accurate. And I first read about something called The Resistance from a book uh, called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which is an excellent book. It's a short read. It's super easy, but super powerful. And he talked in his terms of The Resistance. Now, for me, what do I mean by The Resistance? That's where I bring in the science, okay, um, of this whole thing. So what I know is my leadership process follows the elements that the brain works through for behavioral change and to rewire itself. Okay, that's, you know, I didn't make that up. I, I found that out later and I was super excited because then I could incorporate it. And what that means is that if I ask you to go through the elements of my leadership process, starting with the awareness around emotions and culture, and then making decisions on how you want to behave based on what you've observed, and then start executing a lot of either the behavioral change or what comes inside the behavioral change with the true planning process. Now you've got a, a way to work yourself through it. The brain is rewiring itself. Think about that. You are creating a new mind and that's super hard to do. There will be natural pockets of resistance that your brain, that your physiology will put you up against. In other words, you are struggling with a certain emotion and you're struggling with Again, I always use anger because that's an easy one, right? Everybody can get that. And you know that when you, you have an anger issue because you now you recognize it, you know when you're angry, you act in these ways and you're trying to act in this way instead and you're making your plan, but you're making mistakes, okay? What we know is you've become neurochemically addicted to an emotion and the behaviors that drive that emotion. It is the same thing, and I don't say this lightly, it's the same thing as any addict, be it an addict of drugs, be it an addict of alcohol, be it an addict of anything. You are going to find any justification to serve your addiction. And if your addiction is to an emotion, you're going to find anything in your environment to serve that addiction. And to change that, that's a neurochemical change. So my point is, if you understand that scientifically, 
You're rewiring your brain, creating a new physiology. Give yourself a little patience. Give yourself a little grace. That's just resistance. It's your own brain and body fighting the changes you are going to make because they're not used to them. Same thing when we do it for our team now. We always have to do it for ourselves first, and then we move outward. And when we are trying to change behaviors of a team, an organization, a family, understand that we're trying to change the way people think and act, and we're changing their behavior by rewiring the brain, and it's hard. So when they get it wrong, when they do something that's contrary to what you're asking, even though what you're asking makes perfect sense, you don't have to take it personally. You can understand that there's a natural resistance going on there. And that's what I that's what I mean by the resistance. Let's wrap up the conversation with this point that you made about the SEAL teams, because I thought it illustrated nicely how great leaders and ones that follow this process can help organizations kind of transcend generations. So you made a point that during the Normandy alleyway operation and then the operation to save Captain Phillips, they spanned over two generations. Mm -hmm. But the method in which those were carried out by SEAL teams were pretty similar, which was precision, excellence, all while knowing what the risks are. I mean, they're risking their lives to to carry out these operations, but the precision in which they carry them out is just incredible. Share more thoughts about what leadership does to make sure that these these organizations can survive and people can behave the same way, even spanning that many generations. So, right. Those, those two, that's the point I make. Look, no culture is perfect, okay? Everybody has their mistakes. But the overriding feeling of a good culture can be born in a few things that are done consistently over time. Like you said, those two operations, the Normandy operation and and Captain Phillips, the boldness of the plan, the execution of how it was done, right? All of those things, those are things that that's what the SEALs stand for. How can we do what seems to be impossible? And then we're going to do it. We're going to show that courage on every front but we're also going to be so methodical and smart with our planning that we can't fail. That's just the way things are done. Okay. So how do we create that? First of all, you have to identify what it is you want. At some point, somebody in the SEAL teams, and they were called a couple other things before they were SEAL teams, made that point. This is what we do. And it worked. And then the next group passed it on and said, this is what we do. This is how we do things. And it worked and they pass it on. It became identified and it was constantly reiterated about how things are done. And that's it. Okay. So creating this culture, it is the leader's job. So that story I told you that we talked about from the FBI. Okay. And I, I make this point very clear to leaders. Just because people love their job, don't think that they're going to stay. And if people hate their job, they'll stay. Why? Because of the environment that's created, because of the things you do, the way you behave, the culture you have established. That's it. So I loved being a special agent for the FBI. I just didn't like the way we did things from a behavioral standpoint. From a widget standpoint, we're, we're pretty good at going investigating scenes and all yeah. that stuff, right? But that's, that's not it. Conversely, I always tell the story about copier sales. I love that job. Not because I loved copiers, but I loved the environment that was created around it. When we are consumed as leaders with creating an environment people can love, we no longer have to burden ourselves with why people have that job. What's their motivation? Why don't they love that job? You have no control over that motivation as a leader. That person may take that job because that's the job they need. 
You have all the control over the environment by establishing behaviors. If people know they're going to come in and people are going to behave in these very positive ways and people are held to account, they're going to enjoy coming to work generally. My guest has been Errol Dobler. Errol, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. you got a great background and I love your leadership process. It's great. Where can people learn more about you or Anything that you want to leave people with before we wrap up? So everything Leader193, my website, Leader193.com. My two main social media platforms are Instagram and Facebook at Leader underscore 193. I'll be the only one out there. Um, you can find the book on my website or on Amazon. And you know we're opening up. I do leadership retreats for clients and we're starting in 2021 to open them up to the public. Uh, you know, we've just announced our first one. We, we call it the forum, the forum 0121, and that'll be in January in New Jersey. So if that's something that people are interested in, go to the website, take a look and get more information. Thanks, Errol. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Brandon.